This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is... What was it like to play in the ABA? All right, hello, and welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast at harborproxism.com. I am Jason Mann, and we're continuing our series of basketball mysteries of the 1970s, and we have a couple very special guests today talking about uh, what it was like to play in the ABA. Uh, first guest, he actually played in the ABA, Bob Nedelicki. He uh, played almost the entire existence of the uh, ABA, mostly with the Indiana Pacers. He was a four-time All-Star, two-time ABA champion who averaged 16 points per game and 8.9 rebounds in his career. Uh, Bob, uh, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, thank you. It's good to be here. And we also have with us uh, Ted Green. He is a board member of the Dropping Dimes Foundation and a filmmaker who has produced documentaries on Pacers legends uh, Slick Leonard and Roger Brown. And uh, we'll talk a lot about Dropping Dimes uh, uh, later on and and the work that they're doing with uh, former ABA players. And appreciate uh, them with uh, connecting uh, connecting us with with you guys. and uh, definitely a worthy cause that we'll talk uh, quite a bit about. But I, I want to talk about um, uh, w- with Bob first, who uh, with who had a, a great career in the ABA. Um, and you know, Bob, when you first were um, you were making the choice, uh, you, you joined the ABA in its first season. It was a, it was a brand new league, um, a startup competing with the established uh, ABA. What led you to, uh, to to join the Pacers and to take the take the plunge in a new league over the established NBA? Well, you have to remember back then. You probably can't because you sound you're way too young. Um, in 1966, there was only eight teams in the NBA, and the NBA was about as popular as watching uh, uh, feeding sparrows in the morning with grass seed. I mean, there was there was no television, there was no PR. Every once in a while, you'd hear about Bill Russell playing Will Chamberlain. And that was about it. It was an East Coast game, um, very little national coverage, if any at all. So when the ABA drafted me, I well, during my college years, um, I never even gave it a thought to play in the NBA like they do today. I mean, when they're when the kids are 12 years old, they're, they're playing their NBA careers. But back when when I played in high school, you didn't even know the NBA existed. Um, so what it was is I got drafted by the Pacers. And then I got drafted by the San Diego Rockets in the uh, in the NBA. Uh, it basically, it just came down to dollars. Uh, I, I went and saw the people over in, in the, the Pacers, and I uh, I, ca- I was contacted by San Diego, and uh, the Pacers offered me a much better deal. Of course, back then, a much better deal was seventeen thousand versus twelve thousand dollars a year. But uh, kind of crazy in today's figures but that was that was really good money back then i mean first round draft choices back then were getting 20 25 grand and so i thought that i did pretty good because i not only got that but i got a bonus and, and i got the use of a car for a year so it, it was strictly money and but it was the best choice i ever made uh because uh, the uh the aba really uh changed basketball as we know it and uh 
you know, when I started, there was only uh, 20 teams in both leagues. So there's 30 now with 15 players apiece. We were only allowed 10 a team. So there was a lot smaller player pool, and uh, uh, I think the talent was great, and the uh, the whole league was a lot of fun, and, and we can look back saying, uh, you know, what we think we did for the game of basketball. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that's um, important about the ABA is that it – um, brought to light a lot of talent that hadn't had a chance in the NBA for various reasons, whether there weren't spots or um, or for guys like um, uh, like Roger Brown or Doug Moe who or uh, Connie Hawkins who had uh, been tied to tenuously tied to some gambling scandals and had been blackballed uh, unfairly by the NBA. And uh, right, that was a ridiculous that was a ridiculous time in sports. I mean, back then the people that actually barred Roger Brown. I think the commissioner, I can't remember his name, but I think he was three foot tall and didn't even know what a basketball looked like. Uh, and he, and he, bar, he barred Roger Brown and Doug Bow without any proof, without anything, just a, just a hearsay. And, of course, Roger Brown, in my personal opinion, had he had he been able to play college ball, him and Connie both, and uh, go into the NBA, right? You'd be talking to Roger Brown in the same words as you would Michael Jordan and Jerry West, people like that. Absolutely no doubt about that. And it was, it gave a lot of people a lot of chances because just figure in 66, there's eight teams. That's 80 players. Now, there was more than 80 very good players in, in, in the country back then. The problem was there just wasn't enough spot. And, uh, you know, they could only have 80 players. And, and all of a sudden, there's this new league opens up, and now there's 200 players. But what they're finding out is most of those 200 players are just as good as the ones that were playing in the NBA. So, so Ted, um, talking about Roger Brown, one of the documentaries that you produced was was on Roger, and you know what were his um, specific skills, and, and and what stood out to him as a player and, and as a person. Well, it's, it's kind of funny because it, what his st- skills started out as, and Donnie Walsh talks about this. Donnie Walsh played against him uh, back in their high school days in New York City. They actually uh, a place called Kutcher's where they would go during the summers and. They played on the same team, and Donnie just, just raves about him. But back then, Roger just jumped out of the gym. I mean, he set the New York City high jump record when he was at Wingate High School. Uh, and also, he just had tremendous range on his jumper. That's the thing that uh, the people who remember him from back then, he, his jumper, if it was second to anyone's, it was only second to Tony Jackson right around that era. But by the time he got in, really, as, as Meadow said, I mean, he lost his prime years. Um, and, and by the time, you know, he played a lot of AAU ball and, you know, with bad conditions and he played sort of a, played all over the country like that. And by the time he actually got his shot in the ABA, he was not really totally the player he used to be in terms of overall talent. But at the same time, he had changed his game. He had adjusted his game. And he became this one-on-one marvel. I mean, he was known, and this isn't just me talking or his teammate Neto talking. I mean, this is Oscar Robertson talking. This is Julius Erving talking. This is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar talking about this is one of the greatest one-on-one players who ever lived, this incredible first step. And he also just found this great way to free up space. He was a, he could hit from long range, no problem, but he also was the master of sort of the mid-range, you know, the lost art of the mid-range pull-up jumper. And you look at the, you watch footage, unfortunately there's not enough footage, but if you watch some footage and you see the photos, what you'll see is he's always shooting with about three feet of space in front of him because he's got the defender on his heels. So yeah, he was, you know, and again, this isn't me, I never saw him play live, but according to the best players in the world, he was right there among them. And you have to remember, too, I'll add on to what Ted said. When he came to the ABA, he was 25 years old. He'd been playing, had bad knees, both knees, never had the trainers he could have had in the NBA. He was playing at about 60% of his ability, yet he was he was 40% better than anybody in the league. So that's what, that's what kind of shows you. And Ted was mentioning Donnie playing against him when he was in high school. And an interesting story was, Billy Cunningham, who was supposed to be the kangaroo kid and the great defender and leaper, and he was a great player, Hall of Famer. They played against each other in the tournament, city tournament in uh, in New York, uh, state whatever it was. And Roger went head to head with him in eight minute quarters, and Billy had 12 points and Roger had 47. So that that kind of tells you he he was a he was a pretty good player. 
Yeah, he. Uh, I actually have the box score for that game, and I talked to Billy about that, and Billy gives it up to, to Roger right away. They played on some hellacious junior teams back then. I've got a picture of there's Roger Brown and Billy Cunningham and Connie Hawkins on the same team, with, along with some other guys, and then Larry Brown was on the team the year after that. So there was incredible competition back in the PSAL, uh, you know, in the late 1950s and early 60s, and Roger there was right there at the top. I mean, he played in what is widely considered the greatest high school showdown of all time, or at least of all time in New York City, uh, he against Connie Hawkins. And, you know, the score, the, you can just look at the scoreboard. I mean, Roger outscored him 39-18 to 18 and followed him out at the end of the third quarter. So he really, and he was very, very humble about all this. But but truly, you talk about the list of players who are yeah, one of the greatest players that not enough people know about. You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody uh, who's more in that category than Roger Brown. Mm-hmm. So uh, the uh, the second year with the uh, Pacers, 1969 season, um, you have uh, Roger Brown there, uh, Freddie Lewis, and, and, and Bob are some of the key players uh, who came over from the previous season where you had been a roughly 500 team. Uh, early on in the season, uh, Coach Slick Leonard takes over, helps guide the team to a great finish and appearance uh, in, the, uh, in the ABA Finals where they lost to the Oakland Oaks, uh, who had uh, Larry Brown and Doug Moe uh, leading the way. Rick Barry also on the team, but he was injured for most of that season. Uh, you guys added Mel Daniels, uh, who was the uh, who had been a great player with uh, Minnesota, who came over and won the MVP that season. Um, how did the culture of the team change with, with the additions of um, uh, of Mel and and Slick? Well, I can tell you that real easy. Uh, the first year, you know, we nobody knew each other, and um, it was kind of interesting back then because you never could have put together in today's game. It would be impossible to put together a team like we had because, you know, we had a Roger Brown, we had myself, uh, we had uh, Freddie Lewis, and then we get Mel Daniels, the MVP. Uh, you could, the draft would not allow it. There, there would have been no way you could have put together a team back then. But this was the ABA, and, and people were snatching players. And, and uh, you know, the story about how they got Mel Daniels is a fascinating story. I'm not going to take 20 minutes to tell you. I'll plug my book we're writing. It'll be in the book how we got it. But Mel Daniels was literally – bought in a bar at 10 o'clock in the morning on a nap on a, pep, a paper napkin. Uh, and it was probably one of the greatest moves in our franchise history. And uh, I can tell you a couple other things that would have happened, and uh, Ted can uh, back me up on this. Had we not had Mel Daniels or Roger Brown or Freddie or maybe even me uh, that followed the second year in the league, even though we didn't win the final, we got to the finals. But had we not got to the finals, there would not have been an ABA anymore. And people don't know how all that happened, and uh, Ed, Ed, <laughs> Ted, Ted is aware of it. It's a fascinating story that, again, will be told. But there's so many stories that almost say fact is crazier than fiction because the things that held the ABA together, it changed basketball forever. And as you can see the way it is today, it never would have been like it is today had it not been for the ABA and innovations. And, and, and we are going to take personal credit for it. It's just the whole concept of they took basketball like anything else. Everything has to evolve in the world. You have to change. You have to get better. And the NBA was really in a rut. And the ABA came along and forced change. And I'll tell you what, if you look at the game today, the only difference between the ABA and that game today is the color of the ball. Yeah, obviously the ABA was able to open up the style of play. The three-pointer created, uh, you know, there's a lot, lot of talk about spacing in the modern NBA. Um, but, you know, the ABA helped to start that because the, the the three-pointers were certainly not as frequent as they are today, but it definitely changed the tenor of the game. It opened up the middle. It, it really did change the, uh, you know, it, it created a different style of play. And, of course, the other thing was the ABA um, creating uh, an environment where you know players were could could jump over from the um, NBA, the the salaries would increase, and competition for the best college players as well was uh, you know I mean you obviously could speak about some of the other things that the ABA um, did to contribute, but those are the things that that stand out to me as far as you know the the, the revolutionary impact the ABA had on basketball and still being uh, you know felt today. 
One of the biggest yeah. ones was when Spencer Haywood challenged the uh, college rule of taking, you know, taking of the, taking a player who hadn't been to college uh, over four years, and that was something that you know the, he went to, the, I guess, the Supreme Court, and he got a ruling, the Spencer Haywood rule, that, that he could sign the new classman, which is fair. I mean, you know, they got 15-year-old pro tennis players. If these kids are good enough to play, they ought to be able to play. And uh, there was just a whole lot of things that the ABA did that was kind of. It was almost like, oh, you can't do that back then, but we did it. And uh, I guess our attitude was tough, tough, pardon the word, I'm glad this is live, tough shit. You know, we're going to do it. <laughs> I, I will say one of the things the, the ABA did that it wasn't supposed to do is that uh, Bob here, humble guy, had the swinginest bar in town called Nettos in the Meadows. I was going to ask about very that, popular. yes. yes. Well, you know, for the, for the brief amount of time that he had managed to keep that thing afloat, but one of the things they did was to sneak in a very much underage Spencer Haywood into that bar. Am I not right there, Neto? <laughs> well, yeah. The first time Spencer played in town, he came to the bar, and I remember one of the one of the managers wouldn't let him in because his ID didn't have an ID, and I said, "Let him in, let him in." <laughs> and I don't think there was a policeman in town that would have. Uh, we had more policemen <laughs> sitting in the bar drinking beer than we did players half the time, so I don't think I don't think we had any problems. Another thing we did with the bar, and it'll be in this book we're writing about. Uh, um, we had a we had an open thing that the bartenders and all the waitresses were instructed the night before the game. See, it's not like it is today. They wouldn't fly in and fly out. They would always fly in the night before the game, and everywhere all the teams would come to the bar because the hotel they stayed in was just down the street, and uh, we had a strict rule. You know, all the free beer they want. And because the, you know you don't play as well if you got a hangover the next day, and uh, and a lot of stories also with the lovely like we had a lot of lovely ladies that uh, were in our bar and some of them uh, were a little uh, shady but uh, I can tell you one story and I won't mention any names but uh, one team came in and they had the, one of the leading scorers in the league one of the best players in basketball came in was with them and one of this beautiful blonde young lady uh, sashayed out the door with him and turned around and winked at me as she went out the door. And the next night, I guarded him, and he'd been averaging like 32 points, and he had five at the end of the third quarter. And I looked at him, and I said, you have a tough night last night? <laughs> he just kind of shook his head because he couldn't breathe. He was so tired. Yeah, well, I guess take any help you can get. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll never let you can guess who it was. I'll never let I'll never I'll never tell. All right, well, leave it to the <laughs> listeners to speculate about that. But uh, so um, so um, Bob, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to um, to, to play under Slick Leonard? I mean, my my understanding is that he um, what it was uh, could be very fiery on the court and had a you know had some very tough practices and we and was strict on one hand but on the other hand there was also very much a, a, a family atmosphere around the team and very much a sense that he you know cared for his players and um and you could uh you know go out with them and and and, and drink with him but still you know he had the discipline that you needed over the team well, we knew Slick the, the year before. The first year in the league, he handled our uh, rookie camp, and and we got to know him throughout the year. He was, uh, you know, he was kind of a uh, icon in Indiana, and uh, and he liked to. Let's face it, he liked to have a few drinks every once in a while, but so did all of us. And what uh, w- w- we had a coach that we started out with, Larry Stableman, and he was a nice guy, but he just he was a college coach, and he just really really didn't know what he was doing and couldn't handle players. And they put Slick in there, and, and Slick came in with an attitude. He, he he basically walked in the first day and laid some real heavy stuff on us. But he told us one thing. He said he'd run through walls for us. And we had to the point where he would make us so mad. I can tell you, I could tell stories from here to Sunday. You probably you couldn't use them on the radio show. But I could, uh, I could tell you stories from here to Sunday about the things he did and would make us mad and, I've seen him make Mel Daniels so mad. The only person that was safe was maybe the ball boy. I mean, he'd, he'd kill the cheerleaders. He was so mad at Slick. But he would go out and probably get 40 points in the second half and come in and Slick would give him a big kiss. But And then after the game, basically, if we want Slick, would expect us. He wouldn't, he wouldn't say, hey, guys, maybe do it. He would expect us, if we're on the road, to show up in the bar and at least have one drink and talk it over as a team. And that brought us close together. They brought us, we were almost like a family. 
And I think uh, Ted can tell you that through what he's seen with making the documentary on Roger and with Mel Daniels passing away last year, the closest we had, even even 40 years after the fact. And, 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 and Slick is the one that brought us together. And plus, we really, really were fortunate that we just had a great, great group of guys. And, and uh, everybody, we didn't care. It was funny back then. Nowadays, people are worried about their minutes or their points or you know, in, in a one playoff series, we won the championship. I think that one series, the championship series, I averaged like 42 points a game. Roger averaged 40, no, 42 minutes a game. And Roger averaged 46 minutes a game. And Mel was 40. And, and nobody cared about their minutes or their points. All we cared about was winning. And that's kind of what Slick instilled in us. And it's, it's too bad. You don't see that today. You see these guys crying about their minutes and getting upset if they don't play in certain games. And it, God help him if Slick was their coach because he'd have a baseball bat after him at halftime. I, I've heard there was a story once where there may have been a, uh, a hockey stick involved with you and Leonard. There may have been some, uh, you know, some some, some anger at uh, at you. Uh, could you share anything about that, or should we just leave that? Well, I, I don't. I don't call it a hockey stick. I call it a, mo- a motivational tool, right? <laughs> right there. I think it was a it was, it was, it was a hockey ship hockey stick shaped motivational tool. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well. <laughs> We were, we, were, we were playing Minnesota. Uh, it was the first year in the league. First year Slick was here. We were playing Minnesota, and, and, and they had games around the state. And so we were playing in a game in Duluth, Minnesota. And it was about 300 below zero up. And we were, in, we were in this gym that had been an old hockey arena. And we were dressing in this hockey, the hockey player's room. And at halftime, I, I wasn't playing too good the first half. I'll admit it. I was dogging it a little bit. And he came in. He sat us down, and and he got he he lit into me with a lot of words I can't use, uh, maybe a hundred of them. And he happened to just he he was just I could see he was trying to figure out what to do, what to do next. And he, I saw him eyeball. There was a whole line of hockey sticks on the wall, and he reached up and grabbed this hockey stick and came towards me. And I knew I took off towards the bathroom. And I locked myself in the bathroom door, and he was beating on the door. with. I don't know whether he would have hit me with it or not, but he sure shook me up a little bit. (laughs) But I think I went out and got 20 the second half. So so whatever it is, it was. Nothing like a little motivation. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, but the best part part of it is, after after the game, we went out and had a few beers and laughed about it. (laughs) Um, So you... um, the the Pacers were able and and after losing to the Oaks in 1969, they came back in 1970. They beat the uh, the Stars, who were still in Los Angeles at the time, who were led by uh, Matt Calvin and uh, Willie Wise. And um, obviously, it, you know, winning a, a championship is obviously a great um, accomplishment, especially with the uh, togetherness that you guys are. are. Any particular memories of that um, of winning that championship or anything during that series that stand out to you? Yeah, you know, we all we all had a we were all mad about the year before because people don't realize the year before we should have won it too. We should have been, you know, we had them down two one, or until one. We had them, we won the first game out there, and then we had we came back here, and in the first game we were ahead by two points, or by three points. What was it? We were, we were ahead by three points. I think we were ahead by three points or two point two points with five seconds to go and they fouled Roger Brown. Now you figure we're going to win because he had three shots to make two. And for some reason, he only made one shot. So we're down three points. And Slick just said, whoever gets the ball, foul him. And they threw the ball to Warren Armstrong, Warren Javale at half court. And he fired a half court jump shot that swished and set the thing into overtime. And they ended up beating us. And the letdown was unbelievable. I think had we won that game, we might have won that series too. This is a typical athlete here, right? He's trying to praise you on your yeah, championship. Right. Well, what do you do? Hey, I'm, I'm, and what do you do, Bob? You're I'm bitching telling. about one that got away. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we had a vendetta. I mean, the first the first practice of the year, Slick showed us a replay of Warren hitting that shot. And we had a vendetta the whole year. We were going to, you know, bing, bing, bing. And truthfully, I blame myself for this. I'm taking responsibility. And I didn't tell Slick till about it three months after the fact, is the sixth game at home, or the fifth game at home, the fifth, fifth one at home, we should have won at home. We had all the national TV cameras in the locker room. We had them beat. 
And don't ask me, pardon the expression, the day before I went out and went water skiing for the first time that summer and that spring, and I don't know if you ever slalom skied, but my arms were so sore the next day at the game, I could barely lift them up to shoot a jump shot. And I think I was, I had 17 points. I think I missed 10 shots in a row, which I should have made, and we ended up getting beat by a couple points and then had to go back for the sixth game in L.A., but I blame myself for that, but I was I was scared to death how slick. I finally told him after we won the series that had I told him that day, I probably wouldn't have been on the plane. I would probably been dead. But uh, the first the first championship, and and the thing about it, when we played in L.A., L.A. the Lakers weren't in the playoffs that year. They weren't that good, so we were the only show in L.A. We had a huge crowd, a lot of movie stars, and and it, for us guys, it was pretty big. We were really it was big time, and I know Roger. Roger had a playoff series, unbelievable. I mean, 53 points one night, 49. I mean, he was he was absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, winning that first one, you know, we won three, but first one, it was the best. It was it was just something I'll never, ever forget. And I've still got my chat. I've, I've got, they only had, like, they only made in those days, now they make 100 of them, but they, they only gave out 12 of the championship rings. And I've had a lot of these memorabilia people offered me a lot of money for my ring. And I, I won't, the only way they'll ever sell is they got to cut it off my hands someday, but my grandson will get it. But it, it's one of the most important things I have as far as memorabilia goes and all the memories with the guys. And It was just a very special, special time, and it really, the city just loved it, and uh, it was a great time. And, and one thing led to another. I'll go into another story because I'm kind of talking too much, but when we got back, Mike Storen, asked me, wanted to have a celebration at my nightclub, a Pacer celebration, and he said, I want to have champagne for all the guys. And I said, well, how many bottles do you need, Mike? And he said, oh, get us 100 bottles. He made a big time in it. So I, I got him 100 bottles of champagne. I charged him $25 a bottle, which he thought was a good deal, but he didn't realize I paid 2 bucks a bottle for him. <laughs> <laughs> So that was that was my that was my playoff bonus <laughs> in those days. <laughs> well, you smart businessman, you got to you know make yourself a good deal. You you win a championship, you you earn a little bit of extra. So, uh, so yeah. you um you guys battled the stars again in uh, in seventy one in the finals. They had moved to Utah at this point. Uh, they'd added Zemo Beatty, a little bit of a stronger team, and and lost a you guys lost a very close uh, seven game series to um, them, and then. Uh, in 72, added uh, George McGinnis and Darnell Hillman to the team, and you were able to um, made the finals again and then beat the Nets uh, four games to two. This is the Nets with uh, Rick Barry, uh, Bill Melchione, and right. Billy Paltz. Right. That's, that's another thing that would never have happened in today's game because here we are. We just won it. We just finished uh, uh, in the championship series the year before. And we end up getting the number one the next day, the next season. We end up signing the number one underclassman in the United States, and George McGinnis. Now that would never have happened in today's game. You wouldn't have been able to get that high a draft choice or anything. And we tied Darnell Hellman, who, who was uh, coveted by the I think the Warriors out in, in the NBA. So we were able to sign guys back then. And George, in my opinion, was in his prime was one of the top two or three power forwards ever lived. So, you know, we, we just, we kept adding to this great team we had. And, and again, you couldn't have done it in today's game, but it just, it just, it was really, it was a thrill to play with everybody and just to see how, how these guys would grow and how, how good they were. And George just kept getting better and better every day. So it was fun to watch. Now, were you ever approached to, um, you know, by anyone from the NBA to jump leagues or anything like that? Um, did that ever ha- happen to you uh, during I your career? A, I had a couple feelers from the Knicks uh, one time, and I didn't even call them back. I had no desire to do it. And, uh, you know, back in, back in those days, you, it wasn't the money. It, you know, today, they only will give you this much, we'll give you that much. I didn't want to jump. I could have. Um, Dick Tinkham, a funny story, made a big mistake. Uh, in those days, you had a reserve clause in your contract, and they had to, if you decided not to pick up your reserve, they had they had to sign you by a certain date in September, or you were a free agent. And I can remember at midnight, I was sitting in my bar, and I called Dick Tinkham on the phone, and I said, hey, guess what? Your wonderful general manager forgot to sign me. I'm now a free agent. 
Well, I think he was, he lives maybe a half hour from my house, and I think he was there in 15 minutes. But he, 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 oh, he, oh, you can't do this. You can't. And I had never any intention of jumping to another team. Matter of fact, there was a couple, I might have mentioned who I could have jumped to, but all I wanted to do was play with the Pacers. You know, I, I didn't care about jumping, and that's kind of the way everybody felt. When Roger Brown had his lawsuit, uh, you know, the NBA settled with him in the lawsuit. They offered him a chance to play in the NBA. Of course, Connie Hawkins did. Roger wanted to stay with us because we were, you know, we, we had something special here. And uh, money wasn't money wasn't a deal back then like it is today, which is it kind of made the game more pure, I guess. It's kind of melodramatic, but I think it was uh, there was a lot more loyalty back then than there is today. And I can't blame these kids for jumping legs. I mean, I can't even... <laughs> I make it 20 or 30 million i can't even imagine that in my wildest dreams yeah and yeah i think people maybe modern fans don't have the appreciation of just you know what the salary structure was like when you were playing you could make a good living but you weren't you didn't have the kind of anywhere near kind the kind of money um that they have today of course the, the the travel was much more difficult uh you know the accommodations weren't good and you know in the aba you, you know you're dealing with first year, i interrupt you the first first year the Pacers were in existence, the entire payroll for the 12 players or 10 players, whatever it was, the coaches and the trainers, the entire combined payroll was $180,000 for everybody. So you can put that in perspective. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so you went to uh, you went to Dallas for a season uh, in '73, where the, uh, the Dallas Chaparrales, who then then became the Spurs, and you were in San Antonio for a little bit before returning to the Pacers. Um, what led you there, and what was your experience like um, in Dallas compared to um, you know the Pacers, which you know were one of the more uh, stable organizations, probably the most stable organization in the ABA, as opposed to Dallas, which you know um, which struggled a lot more and, and dealt with a lot more obstacles. I, I would, I think it's fair to say. Well, that's that's another one of Dick Tinkham's. Uh, um, what, what do I call it? Uh, uh, Creative financing uh, things, but they traded. I had a clause in my contract that if they had, they sold me. Like they couldn't trade me. They, if they sold me to another team, another team could pick up. Could, I could shop myself around. So when I heard they were going to trade me, I, Mike Storm wanted me to come down to Kentucky, and I had been playing with Louis and with Louis and artists and Dan, which had been kind of cool. So all of a sudden, they come up with this thing where Dallas is buying me from the Pacers for $250,000, which was unheard of money back then. And so nobody could match it. But the funny part, I get down to Dallas. The day after they traded me to Dallas, the Pacers end up buying Donnie Freeman from Dallas for $250,000. So basically in the long run, it was an even trade, but that was that was the way things worked. But playing for Dallas actually was kind of fun. Dallas is a really, really fantastic town. And I, I was, you know, I was single and and I lived right up the street from Craig Morton who played for the Cowboys and he just opened a bar and I got to know him and I'll tell you I had a great time in Dallas and Babe McCarthy was the coach. And old Babe, I mean, if you gotta play for somebody besides Slick, old Babe was great. He was just a great coach. And we, we had some fun, and uh, and I played there. And then, of course, I was they moved, they were sold, and became the San Antonio Spurs. So, actually, I played on the first Spurs team. So, you know, that the quarter will get me half a cup of coffee. But still, it, uh, it was it was a fun thing to say. And uh, you know, I was the I was the first starting center on, in their franchise history, and actually, and I was the first starting center for the Pacers franchise history. So, I'm in the record books in a little bitty way. But not not much. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's fairly good history. You know, obviously those franchises have had a lot of success. The, the Spurs, of course, you know, one of the great franchises of the past uh, uh, twenty years or so with Tim Duncan. So that's to be part of that history, even in a small way, must uh, uh, you know must feel special for you. Um, now, during the as the as the ABA evolved in the later years, was there ever a, a a time where the ABA felt like secure, like this is a, you know, a, a permanent thing. We feel good about where we are. I know the merger was always, you know, a thing that was certainly talked about that it was fairly close in 1970. Um, and, you know, there was always kind of the talk of, you know, okay, in a year or two, this is probably going to happen. So did, was the ABA, did, did, did you feel secure in there or was there always kind of a, 
you know, a tenuous feeling, worry about, you know, teams folding, teams moving, just you kind of constant change within the league? I like these questions you're asking me because obviously you didn't know what happened, and that's all going to be in this book I'm writing with the owner of the Pacers and Robin Miller. And there's stories about that. You know, the, you, you realize that in 1970, the merger was done. I mean, the, mer- the, two, the leagues merged. It right. was done. Signed, sealed, put except for Oscar Robertson filed that lawsuit, which stopped the whole thing for about five years. Had, had Oscar not done that, the leagues would have become, the merger would have happened in 1970. And then I'd have a pension, Ted. <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, uh, that's one of those things. But as players, honest to gosh, we never thought about it. We, we, never, we never got into the politics of that stuff. I never... Honestly, in, in the whole eight to nine year, eight years I played or nine, I never once thought about the league folding. Uh, it's funny you, you, I would say that, but because everything, I'm sure the owners and all the turmoil that was going on, but uh, and maybe it was because I played in Indiana because it was such a secure, secure venue, but I never once uh, thought about that. And I don't think a lot of guys really did. I think everybody just saw playing basketball. But I think I can chime in here and say that there wasn't a single day in the history of that league where there was any great sense of financial security at all. Uh, and that kind of goes to what, what Neto was saying earlier when he said that if you know if the Pacers hadn't reached the finals in 69, the ABA would have folded. That might sound like a kind of an outrageous statement, but you got to look at it this way. The Pacers were, you know, all teams were folding left and right back there, and the Pacers were just like that. And they needed to reach, what was it, the second or the third round of the playoffs just to stay alive. I mean, they were going to fold the next day. And the Pacers, as you know, ended up being the most stable franchise in the league. Kentucky probably second, but but the Pacers by far. And without a bedrock team like the Pacers, yes, it's, it's very, very plausible that the league would have been kind of stopped in its tracks. So it, there was it was there was all the, there was a lot more at stake during a lot of these games than just the the score on the scoreboard. And a lot of people didn't know. A lot of people didn't know about it. I mean, like I said, that's why we're writing a story in this book that, that the owner, because uh, he, this is an absolute 100% fact. That, that seventh game we played, well, we were down 3-1. We came back and won the series against Kentucky. But in that seventh game, had we lost that seventh game, they were going into they were going into Chapter 13 or 11 or what it was the next day. They already had the papers ready to go. They were, they were folding the team. It was done, over. Now, if the Pacers had folded, the league was going to fold, and and basketball would have it never would have been the same. And it sounds crazy, but there's all there's more than one story like that out there, and and, and it's amazing how little quips and little things happen. Now, the players didn't know it. I didn't know it. I, I talked to Slick about it about two or three months ago. He didn't know it, and he was the coach, but all the owners did. And there was there was just like like Ted said. It was like they were walking on a tightrope every day, but we didn't know it. We were just playing the game. So later on in uh, around the '74 season, the you know the, the the core that had been there since the beginning, you and Roger Brown and uh, and, and Freddie Lewis and Mel Daniels had kind of a last run together in the um, battling to uh, in the uh, loss to the Utah Stars in the Western Division Finals, and then eventually. Um, uh, Daniels and Lewis and Brown head to uh, Memphis, and you have your last full season um, in '75. Uh, end up uh, end up facing the Colonels in the ABA Finals and losing in five games. Uh, Billy Knight, a big part of that team. Um, what are kind of your memories of the the last go round with um, you know with those guys who you had you know played with for? so long did did you have a sense that it was kind of coming to an end obviously you're, you're, you guys are getting a bit older at, at that point or was it kind of a big surprise when you know those guys ended up in uh, in memphis well you want to know the real truth and again the guy that did it is right in the book of the guy the real truth is they didn't trade mel and roger and freddie to memphis because they were getting older they wanted new players they traded them for one reason one reason only they were out of money I didn't know this, but I do know it now. They traded them for $150,000 cash to Memphis. They hadn't traded them for $150,000 cash to Memphis. Again, the team couldn't have gone. The team was out of money. They were done. 
And nobody knew this, of course. And we thought they traded Roger Melfrey to get new young talent in and bring guys like Lenny Elmore in and stuff. And, you know, comparing Lenny Elmore to Mel Daniels is like comparing a three-wheel trike to a race car. I mean, there's no way. But but, uh, that's what happened. And, again, like Ted said, we didn't know. I didn't know it. We were just players. But the financial footing back then was tenuous, to say the least. Right, Ted? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really kind of amazing that the league was able to kick around for nine years. And yet out of that, out of that really financial mess was a game changer, you know, with the players, with the style of play and anything. And, and also, it was just a hell of a lot of fun to watch. I mean, I can't go anywhere in Indianapolis. People know, those people who know I've done films on Slick and, and uh, Roger Brown, I mean, all they want to talk about are the old days at the, uh, at the State Fairgrounds Coliseum. You know, whether ever you know, you could smoke then, and the smoke hung low over the court. And those are those are the glory days uh, here by far. Uh, you know, it's not football, okay, it's not anything friends, else. It's it's pro basketball. Right. A lot of my friends told me that most of them didn't see the second half of the game because in those days they'd all bring their little pints of whiskey and order cokes and sit in the sit in the stands. By the second half, they couldn't see the court anyway. So they, it was it was a it was more like playing in a bull ring than it was in a uh, in a beautiful facility like they have today. But it, it's it's amazing. But I'll I'll, I'll tell you something. That, again, I keep plugging our book I'm writing, which I'm going to plug. Hey but, Neto, uh, you're not writing a book, are you? <laughs> here's 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 an interesting here's an interesting uh, fact, and I'll throw it out to you. You might be interested because there's one one of the major reasons the money is so huge in the NBA now. There's one major reason, and there's two letters, television, TV, period. You know, they have two and a half billion starting next year for TV rights. Well, back the first year, the Pacers, all that they TV'd all the games, the ABA games, the home and away games, they TV'd all the games. As a, as a reporter, what do you think the total television revenue for the Pacers was the first year in the league? Well, television the, revenue. The only reason I know this question is because I, I heard it on a different podcast. I believe it was $2,500. Is that correct? <laughs> You're right. Hey, he's cheating, Ted. He's cheating. Man. <laughs> I, I, I call it research. research. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> but, but, you know, when you really think about it, I mean, it, it, you think about it, just the fantastic uh, – Media out there. I mean, television is two and a half billion dollars next year. They're going to start paying. I mean, it's it's incredible. Where you know they were lucky to get fifty dollars a game to television TV back when they started. So it, it, it's amazing what uh, thirty or forty years, or actually be fifty years next year. I did. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Fifty year anniversary. Yeah, um, and I hear there may be an event uh, planned for that, which we can, which we, we might want to get to toward the end. But uh, just a couple uh, questions uh, before we before we get to the end. Um, the ABA and NBA, of course, uh, teams uh, scheduled a number of um, exhibition games in the seventies. Uh, and um, uh, do you have any uh, – do, do any of those games in particular uh, stand out to you? And can you talk about um, – I imagine there was quite a bit of intensity in those games with, you know, players who hadn't played uh, with each other that much. And, of course, you know, just the, I, um, the ABA not getting the attention and certainly those players wanting to prove that they, uh, you know, were as good or better than the NBA players. You know, I think that's, I think, you know, when I'm telling you this, I think that's not really right. That's not really true. Because most of the guys, all the pro players in the summer, we played against each other. We, we, we knew who could play and who couldn't play. And when we played these inter-squad teams, I think, the, I think the fans and the coaches were more into it than the players were. We just, we just went out there and played. Okay. There was no hard feet. There was no, there was no, uh, you know, oh, we got to beat the NBA. We're better than you are. That, that, that really wasn't it. And, and we won our share of games. Actually, I think we we beat them more times than they beat us. But our players were just as good, and they knew it. But they, they aren't going to admit it. Now, the one guy that would never admit it would be Red Arabic. Because, you know, his, his, you know that, that clown, he, oh, he, he hated the NBA. But the rest of the league, they all knew. I mean, I, I, I used to talk to players in the summer, and they all knew who could play. I mean, they knew Roger Brown was great. Uh, we all knew that uh, Earl Monroe was fantastic, but so but so so was Julius Irving. So, you know, we we uh, 
the, the, the parity was really, really close. And sure, there were some weak teams in the ABA, but I'll tell you that Philadelphia team that lost 74 games when they played in the NBA, they weren't very good either. So uh, we, we each, each league had its team, its weak teams. Yeah. Let me let me jump let me jump sure. in here too. I, I was very fortunate to interview Jerry West for the film I did on Slick Leonard. And and Jerry was one of the guys, he and Elgin Baylor, they came in 1970, they came to see the finals between the ABA finals, between the Pacers and the Stars. And they really weren't supposed to. I mean, the, the NBA head honchos were saying, telling people, don't associate with that league at all. Well, if you know Jerry West at all, he doesn't really <laughs> like to be told what to do. And they had both, uh, both those guys had played with uh, Slick Leonard back on the, on the Lakers team. So that's one of the reasons they wanted to go. But Jerry also said, unbidden, he said, you know, I really wanted to go see Roger Brown play. I'd heard so much about this guy. And I, I really was dying to see him play. And he said, and he absolutely lived up to everything he was advertised. I mean, you know, he scored, he scored 53 and 45 points in the last two games out there to clinch the series. And I know Jerry, uh, among others, walked away very impressed. Um, so, so the Pacers, um, you know, they won three championships um, and went to five finals in um, in, in just a few years. Uh, yet, you know, maybe aren't talked about on the same level as the, you know, as the the, the Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, Knicks, or the, um, you know, uh, Will Chamberlain, Jerry West Lakers of the same period. Even though, um, you know, the Pacers um, were, you know, more accomplished in terms of finals appearances and championships. Um, you know, I, I would guess that you think that the the Pacers certainly belong in the same category as those teams, even though they obviously didn't play each other, except for, you know, perhaps, I know the Lakers didn't do any ABA exhibition games, but perhaps the Knicks did. But um, do you feel that maybe, um, you know, that, that there just isn't really enough attention paid to the, um, you know, the, the accomplishment of, of that team that, you know, maybe the dynasty of the 70s is these, uh, you know, Pacers in the ABA, um, and just, you know, kind of the ABA in general? Well, I think, I think you know, number one, media coverage was minimal back then. I mean, even footage of, even in the 70s, even the NBA footage is pretty spotty back then. But uh, I, I think, again, you got your East Coast media and your NBA, and, and, and since the mergers happened, uh, there was a lot of pressure. And I, I, I even felt it in the early years in the NBA when the Pacers were in the NBA. It was like they didn't want to associate with us. They didn't want to admit that there ever was an ABA, which really, really aggravated a lot of the players. Roger was one of them. And uh, that's changed. Donnie Walsh changed that whole thing. And uh, But, uh, you know, I think, I think once the league merged, there was this uppity attitude that, well, you know, we'll forget about you guys. And, uh, the, the, it's going kind of a full circle. And I think especially like Ted made that great documentary about Roger Brown. I mean, how many people have ever heard of Roger Brown, seriously, other than basketball-associated players? I mean, they've heard of Walt Frazier because they called him Clyde and stuff like that. But who have ever heard of Roger Brown? And I've had so many people who have seen that documentary have come up to me and said, I can't believe I never heard of how good he was. And he was. He was that good. So it was like things like that are happening now, and I think history. There's a lot of history buffs out there that more and more are getting, uh, you know, what really happened. And and uh, guys like Ted have gone make these great these super documentaries. Uh, 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 you know, Ted could have gone out and made one on Julius Irving, but hell, everybody knows Julius. He went out and did it on Roger, and I think it was every bit as good. I don't know if you saw the uh, Dr. J. Uh, documented it on ESPN, but I'm telling you, Ted was every bit as good, if not better than that one. And it wasn't so much the talent, it's just the way it was done. And the, and the real true stories of what happened uh, are fascinating. And, uh, and I think, I think people are starting to uh, pick up on that a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's I, doing a lot of research for this podcast. Um, you know, I, I've gotten, a by, the chance- way, by the way, I don't mean, to, I don't mean to pump Ted up because he's, uh, you know, his head's big enough anyway. I don't want to pump him up too much. But, uh, <laughs> I'm glad we got that. He's not, he's, not, he's, he's, not a bad, he's not a bad guy for, for a 
a Hoosier, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we get into talk more about uh, dropping dimes and to and to maybe uh, talk a little bit more about the book, uh, I just wanted to get your feelings. You know, one of the books that has had a um, uh, that has done probably more to. Um, uh, you know, preserve the memory of the ABA um, is Terry Pluto's Loose Balls, which was uh, you know written in 1990, I believe. So it's been out there for quite a while, and I I, I don't know if you've read it or how fresh it is in um, your mind. But but either one of you, if you want to answer this question, what do you, how do you feel about how that book portrays the ABA, and uh, you know what are some of the maybe the the good way the, the good things that it's done, or if there's anything in it that maybe doesn't quite get right, or you know, any feelings you have about um, about that book, if there's anything um, you know that you remember Bob you want to go first uh, personally I, I thought I thought it was an interesting book there's a lot everything in it's pretty much factual uh, I think the biggest the biggest problem with the book is you know there was it's such a huge story uh, to be able to tell in, in, in trying to get all the teams all the players everything in one book like that uh, he, he got the flavor and he touched on a lot of things and it was really a good book of Good stories about the Pacers and stuff like that, and uh, you know, I, I thought I thought it, it, it you know, it's one, it's read one of the better sports books ever, and I enjoyed reading it. But it's like reading a one chapter; it's like reading a chapter where there should be ten chapters, but you can only put so much on so many pages, and uh, and that's why I think that uh, you know what we're going to do is is going to be like that, but it's going to tell the real real stories that I think a lot of people when Terry did the book told us some of the funny stuff, but they didn't get into the real nitty gritty because they don't, you know, the, the politically correct crap out there. They didn't want to step on any toes or do this and do that. And Hey, guess what? We're going to step on a few toes, but it's going to be funny. <laughs> that sounds good. So uh, what do you have a, do you have a, a title for your book and do you have a, a date you're planning on releasing it? Actually, we do. We have a title. We're calling it uh, "We Changed the Game." To have trademarked the phrase, there. If anybody's listening, uh, we have a Facebook page. We changed the game, and we're going to start doing stuff on the Facebook page. And we're building a web page right now too. Uh, we changed the game. dot com. That won't be ready for a while. But Robin Miller, who's a writer here in Indianapolis, uh, he does tons of indie car racing. He's a pretty famous race writer. But he was a Cub reporter with us for the first four or five years we were in the league. And, he was a 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid, and, and uh, we called him we called him the, the Virgin Harry. But he uh, he was a little kid, and he he had a lot of fun. But he saw a lot of things, and and he got the flavor of the of the ABA. And then Dick Tinkham, who was the original Pacer owner, he was the original league counsel. He was the president of the ABA. He was the president of the merger committee. And this is the kind of guy that, you know, the mafia take him out and bury him because he knows where all the bodies are buried. And he's got some fabulous stories, uh, almost unbelievable stories that really, really happened that people are shocked. And not just with the Pacers, with some other teams that uh, one owner called, one morning one owner called, right, the season started, and I won't tell you who because it will be in the book, but an owner called from his duck blind. He was out hunting ducks. And Paul Tinkham up and said, hey, I'm folding my team tomorrow. I'm out. See you later. And hung the phone up. Now, putting that deal together took some serious, serious – but things like that actually happened. And so I think yeah, it's going to be a really, I'd like a really to jump fun in here. read. And, but, I'd like to jump in here and give this – Bob, if you just shut up for a second, I'm trying to give you a plug. <laughs> I, honestly, I thought I thought Loose Balls was was just a fabulous book. I think Terry did a fantastic job. But I am, and I don't know uh, all that's in the book Bob's talking about. But I will say I'm really looking forward to it because you got to look at the authors. You know, whenever you look at a book coming out, you got to look at the authors. You're looking at Bob Nedelicki, uh, certainly one of the most irreverent of ABA players. Uh, the the writer he's talking about, Robin Miller, uh, fits that description for writers and then some. And and, and Dick Tinkham is <laughs> is notorious as much as he is famous. And uh, I do think that book is going to cause uh, quite a stir, uh, not just in Indianapolis. So I, I for one, uh, very much look forward to it. Cool. Well, definitely, uh, listeners should uh, check out. Uh, I just like the Facebook page myself personally. Uh, so, Ted, can you tell us a, a bit about the uh, and, and Ned? Of course, you want to uh, chip in uh, uh, the Dropping Dimes Foundation. 
Dropping Dash Foundation was started a couple of years ago by a couple of uh, a couple of my best friends, uh, attorney Scott Tarter, and an eye physician, Dr. John Abrams, who actually was a ball boy uh, with the ABA Pacers as a little tyke. Um, and the, and the goal it was and remains very simple. We just want to help. Uh, I mean, a lot of these ABA players made, as we've talked about, very little in the way of salary. They got very little medical. You know, et cetera. A lot of their, you know, the guys who who were were big time all stars and played for a long time, you know, like Bob and some others did, you know, did pretty well. But there were plenty of guys who who didn't do well at all, uh, and they're really hurting. And so our our mission is very simple: is we're trying to we're trying to help these guys who have fallen on hard times. Um, they brought uh, I was brought along as a third board member, probably because Scott and John uh, met each other through fundraising uh, for the Roger Brown film. Uh, and we started very small, but since then, I mean, it's been amazing. The thing, the thing about the ABA, in addition to all the fun drinking stories and the incredible basketball on the court, and Neto alluded to this, it was an incredible brotherhood as well. And, and the Pacers are, I think, the greatest example of that, but really it went league-wide. And you can see that in how quickly, you know, we're just a little startup, how quickly we were able to amass an incredible advisory board. I mean, in addition to Neto and, and Slick and, and the other Pacer stars, I mean, we're it's like a who's who of the top ABA figures. We have Bob Costas, Peter Vesey, Dan Issel, George Gervin, Spencer Haywood, Louis Dampier, Artis Gilmore, um, you know, and more than that. And and one of our, our really the heads of our head of our table was always Big Mel Daniels. And of course, his passing was was incredibly sad for many of us, including of course Neto, his, his best friend. But after that, then Reggie Miller uh, joined uh, as you know in the as he took over Mel's role on the board and that's and that's we feel that's pretty special but you know we have been able to help the most important thing are not the big names on the board it's the fact that how many people we have been able to help already and as we've been growing uh you know we are looking to help more and more and these you know these different kinds of things with the first guy who came to us he was really hurting he was a former pacer we thought he would have all these things he needs all he really wanted was a suit so he could go to church well, just a small thing, but, you know, for a big and tall guy, that's not always easy to get. And he didn't have any money, so we helped him out with some clothes so we could go to, go to church. And we got him a new walker. I mean, we've helped players uh, we've helped players learn about the pension money they've been due uh, from the NBA. And for some of these players, that was life-changing money. We, we helped a player uh, attend who wasn't able to do it, uh, attend to the 50th anniversary of his college uh, national championship team. Got guys, page size 19 shoes. I mean, in fact, and right now we're actually in the process. We're getting ready to fly up a player to Indianapolis, where we will do you know full dental uh, reconstructive surgery for him. So as we get in, you know we're getting bigger and bigger, and our message is getting out there. Um, you know we're really proud and humbled um, that we're able to do some things like this for for guys who really did change the game of basketball. That was Sam Smith that uh, you helped uh, go to the reunion from Kentucky. Right, from, yeah, down in Western Muskie. Kentucky. He wasn't able to get down there, and so we were right. able to get him there. These things aren't, you know, it's not like we can, we can't handle everything, um, but but we can, you know, we can we can help these guys out. We can maybe return a little dignity, um, and just and just make their lives a little easier. They gave a lot of themselves, um, often kind of anonymously, but uh, to a bigger picture that did, did change the sport and and pave the way for these gargantuan contracts you see today and so you know if we can help out a little bit that uh you know we think it's a pretty neat thing i've been trying to work with the nba a little bit because you know the pension plan was basically was supposed to have been had but there was some mix-up and some things happened uh, funding and everything but there most of these guys don't don't have it there's no pension money out there there's some little back pay but uh, i've been working with the nba and I, truthfully uh we're working with a guy that's a big shot ahead of the nba and really nice people and they they aren't obligated to do anything for us really but they've been talking to us and hopefully they did this for the pre-65 guys and and give them a small pension and we're trying to get uh, these guys you know a small pension something that they can you know be able to put food on the table and 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 uh and uh have a little dignity and so i'm really excited about that and also this book uh, i think i ted might know this i was talking to john you know we're going to We've talked to the publisher, and we're going to give uh, 10% of all the proceeds of this book uh, we sell is also going to go to Dropping Dimes, as is the proceeds for our 50-year reunion, which I think Ted could probably, you know, 
tell you more about that that's coming up in, in about a year. Well, first let me first let me weigh in on this. I got to get this in there before sure. you know Neto keeps talking. Droppingdimes.org. Yes. Droppingdimes.org. That is our website. We invite everybody to go there and, and you know kind of look at at what we're doing. Um, and uh, you know the process. The site is still a, a work in progress. Um, but yes, uh, as is certainly a plans for a fiftieth uh, reunion. But but yes. Uh, we are we are in very very serious talks about that um, with with people here in the city of Indianapolis. Indianapolis seems very excited about it. People around the league seem excited about it. And, and here, I really I really need to say that, that we have a we're very you know we're a this is a small market team and our small market town. And and but we are we have a wonderful partnership uh, with the current uh, Indiana Pacers. And, and that has really helped dropping dimes immeasurably. I mean, they're helping us reach back into the into the franchise's past and really into basketball's past. So, you know, again, we're we're growing. Uh, we're very hopeful that this 50th uh, reunion can be something extremely, extremely special. And, and I can just say that we have a lot, pretty much all of the big name guys out there. Not just the big name, but just all the guys. They're very excited about what we might be able to do here. Well, that sounds exciting. And um, uh, before we go, is there anything else that either of you would like to, uh, to, to talk about, about uh, ABA history or dropping dimes or any, anything that we've uh, gotten into? Hey, Neto, I heard you're writing a book, right? <laughs> hey, I, I you're making a documentary on Christmas Alex. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> no, but I, I, here's what I, well, I guess what I'd like to say is, is I, uh, I grew up in Wisconsin. And one thing we just treasured there was the, the Green Bay Packers and how neat it was that, you know, not just were they the best team in football for so long, but the players, another, talk about a small market, that's as small as it comes, but the players, you know, after they quit playing, they lived there. They lived there in town and they were part of the town. Well, Indianapolis is blessed with the very same thing, you know, here with the Indiana Pacers. Neto still lived here. Roger Brown uh, lived here up until his very premature death. You know, uh, Mel Daniels, unfortunately, just passed recently, but he was, he and Neto could be seen all around this town. Big, tall black guy, big, tall white guy. They Everywhere they went, people wanted to talk to him. And uh, George McGinnis still lives here, and Darnell Hillman, and, of course, Slick and Nancy Leonard. And and it's just neat. I mean, this team, you, just, you do not see that really anymore, anywhere that I'm aware of. But this team is just very, very close, and they, they remain close with their fans. So... You know, in all honesty, we here in Indianapolis are, are pretty blessed by that. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's that's wonderful to hear. I'll tell you something else that's pretty interesting, and and uh, like Ted can tell you this. Uh, you know, the guys on the uh, when we first started getting this advisory board together, we have a, a partner named Scott Tarter. He's an attorney. Scott does a ton of work on this dropping dimes. A great guy, and and I. I said, well, let's get George Gervin or let's get Spencer Haywood. And, and, and they were, they were, he was almost said, well, well, he won't talk to me. He, he, you know, he, he's a big, and it's amazing how I said, just call him. And you call these guys. And like, I called George Gervin up and I just said, Hey man, what are you doing? And for the next hour, I couldn't get him off the phone. All they want to do is talk ABA basketball. It's it's like a fraternity, almost like like Ed said. It's like a brotherhood. It may sound kind of goofy, but that's the way it is. And I and Scott was amazed. He called Spencer up and he called. He said, "My gosh, these guys talked ABA ball for me for, for a half hour, forty five minutes." And that's the way it is. You call Dan Issel on the phone, man. He all he wants to do is talk about the ABA. So. I think the more you delve into this thing, the more you guys you talk to from the ABA, you'll find out that it's it's a it was a special time in in sports history around the country. I think it was really really neat. We went down to Kentucky, and Neto came down with us, and Darnell Hillman came down uh, to help a couple of guys, a couple of former um, uh, Kentucky players, and Dan Issel came, and and Louis Dampier came. You know, they're now part of our board too, and. You should have seen these guys, their faces just light up, not just the guys we were helping, but the guys who were doing the helping. It was neat to see to see Dan, um, you know, still just a mountain of a guy, just just, just get in there and, and, and really, really enjoy helping people out. And, and we're finding that with all these guys. I mean, tell me Bob Costas doesn't have a zillion other things to do, but he helps out as well. And Reggie Miller the same way. So it, it's, a, it's a neat organization. We're young. 
we're growing, um, but we're you know we are really are making some national strides here, and we, we really encourage everybody out there to give us a look. Go to droppingdimes.org and uh, and see what you think. Well, yeah, I absolutely encourage everyone to uh, to do that, and uh, and thank you so much for, for you both for uh, joining the show. I, I I really was able to I, I enjoyed the stories, and I I feel like I learned a lot. Hopefully, listeners uh, you know get a sense of what uh, life was like in the ABA, and it, it's heartening to hear that that uh, those memories you know have the, the connections are still there between a lot of the former players and um, and the charity work that you guys are doing. You know, sounds like it's uh, you know really making a difference and really helpful. So that's. That's awesome to hear. Um, you know, so you hear so many, uh, you know, bad stories when it comes to, um, you know, athletics, and to hear some, you know, to, to some, and you hear a lot of good ones too. But to hear, you know, these guys, uh, so many years later, those, you know, those ties still being there, it's it's just a wonderful thing. So. Uh, so thanks everyone for uh, checking us out. You can find us at. Um, HardwoodParoxysm.com. We are on iTunes and Stitcher. If you search over and back NBA podcast, and you can uh, please leave a rating and review if you like what you've heard. And uh, keep checking us out. We'll have uh, more episodes uh, for our um, basketball mysteries of the 1970s throughout the entire off season. So hopefully you're enjoying those. Let us know what you uh, think. Uh, can get with us on Facebook or Twitter at Over and Back NBA. So until next time, thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon. Next time on Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. The game uh, was delayed for an hour because there weren't enough ticket takers and sellers to get everybody in, which is great. <laughs> That's perfect. Yes. That's so ABA there. They're like, uh-oh. Yes. <laughs> like, people are actually coming. No. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.